Well, as the kids dismiss, let me just say good morning. Welcome to Christ Community Church. If this is your first time with us, my name is Chris Blackman. I'm a pastoral intern here at the church. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. And please give your attention to the reading of God's word. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding as we seek to hear from you and your word today. Lord, there are many things uh, in the whole Bible, but especially in the book of Revelation, that at times can be uh, confusing and seem complex. We pray uh, that you would give us guidance, Holy Spirit, that you would direct us, that you'd speak through me, and that we would know that we have heard from the word of the Lord today. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. So if you're like me, maybe when you heard that uh, we're going to do an Advent series on the book of Revelation, uh, you thought, that's a little odd. Uh, normally when I think of, you know, Christmas uh, sermon series, you know, I think of maybe Luke uh, or Matthew or something like that or selections from Isaiah uh, but as I prepared for the sermon, and as I reflected and uh, read through our devotion that Cameron prepared for us, I realized more and more that Revelation is an excellent book uh, to be going through during this Advent series. The whole idea of Advent is uh, the preparation and the waiting for Christmas itself, the preparation and the waiting for the arrival of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the preparation and the waiting and the longing for that light to come into the darkness of this world. And Revelation is such a, a powerful book about 
the, the living in the tension of the waiting for the light of God to come and to set all things right. Recently, uh, in the New York Times opinion section, an Anglican uh, priest wrote a really good article on Advent. And uh, the title of the article, if you want to find it, is Want to Get in the Christmas Spirit? Face the Darkness. And I just wanted to read just a, a couple of excerpts from it because I thought it perfectly summed up our struggle with the season of Advent. It said, to practice Advent is to lean into an almost cosmic ache our deep, wordless desire for things to be made right and the incompleteness we find in the meantime. American culture insists that we run at breathless pace from sugar-laced celebration to celebration. We suffer from a collective consumerist mania that demands we remain optimistic, shiny, happy, and having fun, fun, fun. But life isn't a Disney cruise. The tyranny of relentless mandatory celebration leaves us exhausted and often ironically feeling emptier. Many of us suffer from the holiday blues, and I wonder whether this phenomenon is made worse by the incessant demand for cheer, the collective lie that through enough work and positivity, we can perfect our lives and our world. Our response to the wrongness of the world and of ourselves can often be an unhealthy escapism, and we turn to the holidays as anesthesia from pain as much as anything else. What we need are communal rhythms of worship that make deliberate space for both grief and joy. Both darkness and light are real, and our calendar gives time to recall both. But in the end, Christians believe the light is more real and more enduring. There is still good news to celebrate, even when, and perhaps especially when, it's been a hard year. I don't know about you, but you know, when I think of uh, Advent growing up, it was always the message of getting prepared and getting excited for Christmas. And I think what the author of that article is trying to say is we're often conflating and mixing the purpose of Advent, Advent with Christmas. That the whole reason of Advent season is to prepare us to remind us of our need for Jesus to come, to reflect on just how broken and just how dark our world is and just how badly we need the light of heaven, just how badly we need a glimpse of heaven in the midst of our suffering, that we live in the tension of the now but not yet. And so the key truth we're going to be looking at today is really how Christian worship, true Christian worship, invites us in to the tension and the drama of the now but not yet, of the creation of God, of the fall of God, but also his redemption and the glory. So our key truth today is that the sovereignty of our heavenly Father over all creation should produce in us ceaseless worship, which will sustain the church as we wait for Jesus to return. That as we're, we're living in that now but not yet, as we live in that tension, what we need most is not quick and easy solutions. What we need most is not incessant, uh, the message of cheerfulness and just positive thinking. No, what we need most is worship. So far in the book of Revelation, we see that Jesus has appeared to John and he's giving him this message to send to the church. And throughout chapters 2 and 3, he's dealing with the messiness and the complicated nature of the church. 
that even as we try to obey and follow the Lord, we find ourselves stumbling. We find trouble within the church and also without the church. And also that Jesus is warning of persecutions to come. That in the midst of all the messiness, Jesus is there. But now in chapters 4 and 5, we're going to see this transition in the book that Jesus is calling John up to get a glimpse of heaven. And he's saying, I want you to get this glimpse of it now so that you know what this is all about. I want you to get this glimpse of it now so that when you face those persecutions, when you go through those struggles in the church, you'll know that our king is still on the throne, that he's not shaken, that he's not worried about the darkness in the world, that the light truly is powerful and is coming back. So we're going to look at that in two different ways. We're going to look at the power of worship uh, first as worship of God as the center of all creation, and secondly, worship as an act of resistance to evil and perseverance in the world. So my first question I want us to kind of think about in this is, what do you think the heavenly throne room of God looks like? And does it inspire awe in you or dread Or even, might I add, apathy. When we think of coming before God in heaven and seeing this awesome scene of worship before him, I think there's a right level of uh, kind of respectful fear we should have. We see these wonderful images, right, of lightning flashes and, and wild creatures and stuff, and we should be somewhat awed by that and kind of humbled at its, at its, at its size, But I think many times, when it comes to worship, uh, we, get a little, we get a little dull at its message, that even the best worship service you've been in over time can uh, make you tired and sleepy, right? We have limitations in our physical being, that the whole idea of worshiping for eternity before God, uh, for some people, can sound like, that, is that really what heaven is? <laughs> I mean, when I was a kid, I remember someone saying, like, man, if heaven is just 24-7 worship, like, that sounds boring. I want, you know, a skate park with a half pipe. Like, that sounds like a much better version of heaven. And I think because of our limitations, our physical limitations, and even the imperfection of our worship, we can't always visualize what the beauty of eternal worship in God's presence would look like. And here, God is trying to give us a small glimpse of that, saying, you may not understand all of the complexities of these images. You may even be a little freaked out by some of the things you're going to see. But the message of it all is that God is being worshipped because he's worthy of worship, that those creatures there are singing God's praises, and the elders before him are bowing down in worship, and they're joyful to be there that even though we see imperfect worship now, that the worship of the Lord is this wonderful thing, that even though we get glimpses of the joy now, one day it will be perfect and fulfilled, that it will be something that we'll happily do forever and ever. So as Jesus calls John up into heaven and he gives him this sight of the throne room, we see these wonderful and fantastic sights. And this language is a little bit difficult for us, mainly for two reasons. One, uh, we're not very familiar with throne rooms, especially here in America, uh, and also sometimes our lack of understanding of certain Old Testament themes. 
But the whole idea of the throne room of an ancient king was that when you come in, everything in the room is supposed to be shouting how powerful and how awesome this king is. It was very common for ancient kings uh, when the time the Bible was written for them to have exotic animals in cages there and for have nobles from around the country to come in and to bow down to them and to pledge their power to them. That all of this was to shout just how mighty and awesome these kings were. That in John's time, it wasn't uncommon for kings to even think of themselves as gods on earth and that they were displaying their power over nature and man. But while those earthly representations are a mockery of true power, we see this displayed here in its reality. That God on his throne is surrounded by these fantastic creatures. God on his throne, there's lightnings and you know, there's a sea of glass and there's rainbows and bright lights and there's elders with, on little mini thrones with crowns and they're all bowing down before him. That the message is that while you may be afraid of earthly kings with earthly power, that there is a true king who is in power and is on the throne, that he's not a mockery of that, that yes, while those earthly kings can be overthrown, and if you let those animals out of their cages, they'd probably eat that king, right? That this king is truly in control of it all, that he created all that exists, that every animal, that every human being, that the weather itself Right, is all under his authority. And not just earthly authority, but heavenly as well. There's that little line about there's kind of a sea of glass. And most commentators like to point out that this whole idea of there being a sea of glass is to, to display the calmness and the peace that reigns in heaven. That unlike the oceans on earth where there's waves tossed to and fro and there's madness constantly, that in heaven, peace reigns that it's under the control of our heavenly king. John's being brought in to witness this. We're, we could spend weeks and weeks going into you know, each and every detail of how all of these crazy things connect with the Old Testament, um, but I'd like to just focus on a few. The first, I'd like us to notice that John uh, really doesn't go into much detail about what God looks like. Did you catch that? He's spending all this time talking about uh, fantastic beasts and rainbows and bright lights and things like that. But when he's talking about what God looks like, he just says, he's sitting on the throne and he looks like Jasper and Carnelian and then moves on very quickly. And the whole idea of Jasper and Carnelian is essentially this bright reddish-orange color. So he's just saying it's like a bright light, almost like a giant fire. And really, a lot of commentators say, this is John saying, I don't have words sufficient to describe the beauty of God on his throne. I have words sufficient to describe these giant creatures with eyes and wings singing holy, holy, but I don't have words sufficient to describe the beauty of our God. We often talk about God as uh, the source of truth and the source of power, but let yourself take for a minute, meditate on the beauty of God, that rainbows were created by our God, that emeralds and Beautiful stones were created by our God. That all the different varieties of animal life was created by our God. You ever see those uh, like time-lapse pictures of a lightning bolt coming down? I mean, it's amazing to see. And our God created that. That without sin in the world, the perfection of nature 
is meant for us to be enjoyed and meant for us to just be marveling at the one who would create all these things, who has the power to set all these things up. That this vision of heaven is this wonderful place that we would want to be. That yes, God is there in his power and we should humbly bow down as the elders do. We should humbly sing holy, holy, holy and recognize our lack of holiness, but also be filled with awe and marvel and wonder. So many times our worship, we, we get dull with that sense in our just earthly limitedness and in our sinfulness. It doesn't affect us in the way we should, but God is trying to remind his church, remember the source of all power, the source of all beauty, the source of order of all created things. John is getting this beautiful sight of God's power, beauty, and goodness. The other thing I want us to meditate on for a second is that picture of the rainbow before the throne of God. And if you remember back in Genesis, right after the flood of Noah, God promises a covenant to his people and to all creation saying, I'm going to give you this sign, this rainbow, that I will never flood the earth like this again. I will never wipe out all things again. And one of the first things John sees when he goes to the throne room of God is that rainbow right there before God. And in Genesis 9, the language is very interesting. God says, I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. That God is essentially saying the rainbow is a reminder to him, which is a strange thing because it's not like God can forget anything. But he's given us this very tangible visual symbol of his covenant faithfulness, that when God makes a promise, he's not going to break it. I mean, imagine being in the generation after Noah, like the first time it rained, you'd probably be terrified that what just happened was going to happen again. But what they saw after the rain was a rainbow, that God has not given up on his creation, and he's not given up on his people, that God cares about life, and God wants to see his creation and his life flourish, that he's put his image in his people, and that's valuable to him. That if God's promises to Noah are never gonna be broken, then his promises in Christ will never be broken either. His promises to us, that he will never change yesterday, today, and forever. That's essentially what these four creatures are saying in their praise. They talk about God's holiness and his power but they also say who was and is and is to come. That God seated on his throne is not constantly changing his mind like an earthly king. He's not constantly changing policy and direction based on the practicalities of the geopolitical situation. No, God's saying, I've got it all in my hands and I've known what I was going to do from the very beginning. That yes, you may go through dark times now, but trust me, the light has come and will come again. Michael G. Reddish in his commentary on Revelation sums this up beautifully by saying, the throne represents the power and the rule of God. By emphasizing the throne, John is pulling back the curtain and showing his reader the true locus of the world's power. 
that what we see in heaven is our heavenly Father in all his glory, a sight that reminds us how worthy of worship he is. If there's one thing that you hold on to in this Advent season is just how beautiful and worthy our God is. Don't let that become dull in your hearts and your minds. We're so liable to that. Like the angels and the elders, we should yearn to bow down in reverence and joy at his presence. That every time we get to meet here and worship, we get to live out the drama of his creation and his redemption and ultimately the glory that we're going to. And so our second part here, I want to give us a question to think about. Why does Jesus want his church to see a glimpse of God on his throne? That why did Jesus call John up to heaven to get this sight, right? Okay, we know that God is beautiful and God is powerful and God created all things and holds all things, but why did the church then need to hear that so badly? And why did John write this down so that the church today could hear it too? Because we need it just as much. Well, essentially, we can see that this this glorious heavenly worship service going on is a reminder that worship is an act of resistance against the evil of this world. A couple weeks ago, I was preaching at another church on wisdom, on uh, godly wisdom and earthly wisdom, and I was telling them how, you know, the ways of this world uh, will tell you, you got to do this, this, and this to get results. You got to be pragmatic, and you got to be cutthroat, and you got to be brutal to get ahead, and only that can really get what you want. But the wisdom of God is not like that. He's saying, that's not how I want my people to operate in the world. And that if you want true godly results, right, you got to follow my ways, my wisdom, and that I can work through those means way better than earthly sinful means of getting ahead. Then the same way, God has not called us uh, to resistance against evil with swords and spears. No, he's called us to resistance against the darkness and the evil of this world through worship. That every time we gather here to worship God, right, we're proclaiming actually a defiance against the enemy himself and against the darkness that so often wants to warp and twist our minds. We're proclaiming defiance against the sin in our own life that says, you'll never overcome that problem. You'll never beat that temptation. No, we're proclaiming that Jesus has come, that the light really has come in the world, that there is hope. We're proclaiming a defiant hope to ourselves and to those around us, that those days when you do come in somewhat dull of heart and spirit and not in the mood to worship, that just being together being with our brothers and sisters in Christ, the Holy Spirit can speak through one another to encourage each other and move us to greater worship, to greater glory, to remind us of the hope that we have. Revelations chapter 4 and 5 are really setting up uh, kind of the center of the book, that as we move on from the letters to the churches and we're going to see this drama of God's redemption play out, it's setting us up here with a worship service, right? That the, the angels are proclaiming God's goodness and the elders are proclaiming God's goodness as well. And those 24 elders, uh, most scholars think that that means uh, it's a reference to the, the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. And really it's supposed to represent the unity of the church from ancient times 
to today, the Old Testament and the New Testament, that all of God's people are being called to worship him. But the Old Testament believers don't worship a different God. The New Testament believers don't worship a different God. We worship the same God who has redeemed us and has called us into this presence. And I don't know about you, but thinking about if these are representatives of uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament, some of these elders are some of kind of our rock stars of faith in the Bible. People like Abraham and Moses and Ruth and David and Peter and Paul. And yet those men and women are bowing down before our God. They're tossing their crowns at his feet. They're saying every good deed we ever did is not worthy of us. It's worthy of you, Lord, that you deserve all of us. You deserve our power. Just like ancient nobles would come and bow down before their king, so we see these elders bowing down in worship, giving their all to him. They're saying it's not that... uh, The church's good deeds are worthy of worship. No, what's really worthy of worship is that our Heavenly Father saw us through to the end. Our Heavenly Father could bring together believers in the Old and New Testament, could bring together this church of different people from different backgrounds and different cultures, that he could bring together his church and see it persevere. That many times we'll struggle in church, we'll disagree on things, There will be things in the world that cause divisions among us, whether it's politics or views on theology or whatever it could be. But these elders from different time periods in different places are all proclaiming unity, one faith in one almighty God, that that kind of worship can get us through our divisions and our disagreements. It can get us through periods of darkness and suffering as we wait for the light to come. This kind of ceaseless praise is what we want to live out. Another great quote by uh, Derek Thomas in his commentary on Revelation says, John is being reminded that God is in control. The church may be languishing. Satan may be doing his worst, but God is reigning on high. Can I get an amen at that? You know, a while back, this really kind of hit home for me. I was reading an account of a Chinese pastor that was arrested. Uh, And if you followed any of the news uh, in China over the past few years, the government has really cracked down on a lot of churches. And him and a lot of his members were put in jail. um, And he was telling this after he actually got released. And he was saying, you know, they were interrogating him very hard. And one day they were transferring him to another holding cell for some reason in a police car. And there was him in the back seat with three other police officers, and they're, they're kind of yelling at him and accusing him. You know, your group is really trying to overthrow the government, or your group is really a cult, you know, and you're really breaking the law. And he kept telling them over and over, no, 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 like all we do is worship God. It's a community of worship. All we do is worship. So finally, these police officers say, fine. Show us this worship. What is this worship you keep talking about? So he said, okay, like right here? (laughs) Like, yeah, come on. So he tried to think of any Bible verses he had memorized and recited the ones he knew by heart. And he thought of a hymn that they sang a lot, and he tried to sing as much of it as he could. And then he took a moment, and he silently prayed. 
And the rest of the car ride, the police officers didn't really say anything, just left him alone. And a couple months later, he was eventually released. And writing after that, he summarized his experience saying, you know, it was for this worship that we were being persecuted. It's for this worship of God that we're being arrested and accused falsely. But it's also this worship that's sustaining us in the midst of our persecution, in the midst of our arrest and our trials. And it's this worship which testifies to the goodness of God to non-believers, that testifies to the goodness of God to those police officers and to those who would accuse us falsely. That worship is a powerful thing. That yes, we do it every week, and sometimes it becomes a rote in us, but let us not miss this is God's appointed means to sustain the church through dark times and difficult times, to sustain the church even through the mundane, to sustain the church when we're filled with joy, because ultimately we are waiting for our Savior Jesus to return, when he will make all things right, when we will no longer be persecuted for our faith, we will no longer feel the limits of our bodies and our minds in worship, that we will be filled with joy as the angels and the elders were and bowing down in worship for our Heavenly Father. So brothers and sisters, in this season of Advent, as you await to celebrate the light of Christ to come, know that you may see darkness, but our Heavenly Father is still firmly seated on his throne, and he cannot be shaken. He hasn't given up on his covenant promises to Noah, and he's not going to give up on his promises to us in Christ. Worshiping God is an act of defiant hope against the dark, because we know the light has come and will come again. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for its power and its might, for its reminders of the power of worship, of who we worship, our mighty God, our heavenly Father. Lord, thank you that you are the center of all creation. Oh, Lord, help us to worship you more in your beauty, in your power, in your sovereign rule over all things. Lord, help us to persevere in worship when we face hard times and sufferings and struggles. Lord, help us in this season to reflect on just how much we need the light of the world to come. Thank you, Jesus, that you have come. Thank you that you have redeemed us from our sins. Thank you that you will come again. Spirit, thank you for revealing this to us. Continue to reveal it to us. In your name we pray, amen.